Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. I'll mention some other verses outside of Acts uh, at the beginning, but chapter 18 and 19 is where we're headed this morning for our focus. You know, we've studied the book of Acts together throughout this calendar year, and a number of times now we've circled back to ask foundational questions about the book as a whole. What, What is the book of Acts for? What does it do? What does it seek to accomplish that's unique among other books of the Bible? Why did Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, why did he research as he did and travel about as he did and write as he did? Well, to answer those kinds of questions from week to week, passage to passage, we can look in the passage itself and find clues for the book of a whole, book as a whole. However, we must not forget that Luke has given us an explicit purpose statement at the very beginning of his two-volume work. Luke and Acts, a two-volume work. Remind yourself of this. Keep your finger in Acts 18. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. There we have kind of the preface for a two-volume project. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark. Just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, there it is, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now we know that this is a preface for the two-volume work of Luke and Acts because of how Acts begins. Acts 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up in his ascension. And then what follows in the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection and ascension. But it carries over, the purpose from Luke 1, verse 4, carries over, it's written for this man, Theophilus, and those like him, that they might have, what's the word? Certainty. Certainty. Who is Theophilus? Well, he's likely a benefactor. He's likely funding Luke's travel and writing project and research. Most likely, he's a Christian. It says he's been taught these things. What things? The things that follow in the gospel according to Luke. He's perhaps a newer Christian. Or regardless of how long he's been a Christian, it would seem as though he's struggling a bit in his faith. There are some remaining questions he has, some nagging questions. He's looking for certainty. And so Luke travels and researches and writes so that Theophilus and those like him, not just him, but those like him might gain greater certainty about what they've already been taught about Jesus and the birth of the church. Who among us this morning couldn't use a little more certainty? 
I'm sure not all of us have the same kind of uncertainty. Some here, no doubt, are beginning to investigate Christianity. You don't have any certainty. You'd like certainty, whether it's true or not, and that's maybe why you're here. For others, maybe you've been a Christian for some time. Maybe you've been a decent student of the Bible over the years. Maybe you're pretty mature in your faith, and yet still there are times when doubts creep in. And you ask honestly, is this real? Is this whole thing real? Is this, is this some sort of fable that I've come to believe? Is this Bible really supernatural? Many of us have another kind of uncertainty where we live and feel like the events recorded in Luke and Acts didn't really happen. We believe that they happened, but we live like and feel like they really didn't happen at all. We all need a little more certainty. I raise that point today about certainty, particularly for our passage in Acts 18 and 19, because I want to point out right away that we're coming to a passage that doesn't seem to deal with certainty or offer us certainty. Instead, it seems to offer oddities, mysteries, and head scratchers. And there's just no way around it. We have to deal with the oddities, mysteries, and head scratchers head on before we can get to the certainty that Luke is after on the whole in his project of Luke and Acts. There are four head scratchers in our passage. I'll list them for you up front before we read the passage. Number one, there's a haircut with a vow. See what I'm talking about? You didn't see that coming, did you? Number two, there's a very long journey with very little detail. Third, there's a powerful preacher with an incomplete message. And fourth, disciples without a baptism. Now let's read it together, see if you can see these. Chapter 18, starting in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, that is, in the city of Corinth. Then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on ta taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. 
When he arrived, he greatly helped those who were through grace, who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. We'll stop there for today. So let's take one of these four mysteries one at a time. The first, a haircut in a vow in verse 18, the last sentence of verse 18 At Sancria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. What a sentence. I'd be really surprised if anyone has this verse tattooed somewhere on their body, or if someone's tempted to get this tattooed on their body. The questions really abound, for me anyway. What vow? Why a vow? Why now? What's the occasion? What does it mean? What's the connection to a haircut? Should Christians take vows? Is this an Old Testament thing that should rightly be left in the rear view mirror like like food laws and circumcision? Well, not all those answers, not all those questions can be answered, but we can whittle away at some options. We know that this isn't wrong, what Paul did, taking a vow. Luke, I think, would have given us better clues that it was wrong if it was wrong. It's not in contradiction to what Jesus taught in Matthew 5 about oaths. There, Jesus was encouraging honesty in speech. He wasn't banning all kinds of vows. Many have noted that this here in Acts 18 could have some connection to what's called a Nazarite vow. John the Baptist had a Nazarite vow. Samson had a Nazarite vow. It comes from number six. Number six has about 20 verses devoted to the specific vow and how to, how to do one. And because part of having a Nazarite vow meant not cutting your hair until the end of the vow, there's some connection to hair. Maybe that's what Paul did. Maybe. But part of what messes up our understanding of this, I think, is that for most of us, we think of a vow as something you promise to do about what you do. You're making a promise before the Lord about something you will do. But, but vows, biblically speaking, are much more diverse than this. A vow could be a sign of thankfulness for the Lord for something he has already done. A vow could be part of a petition in a time of need, asking the Lord to do something in the future. A vow could be simply a a general mark of devotion to the Lord, a statement about caring for the Lord and being committed to him. Whatever the motivation and basis for any of these vows, whether it's Nazarite or otherwise, we should know whether Old Testament or New, 
They're always volitional. They're always optional. They're always personal. The Nazarite vow in number six wasn't a command for all of God's people. It was available to all of God's people if they so choose. But regardless of Nazarite vow or not, why did Paul make this vow? That's our question for now. And I think context helps us understand what's going on here. Look back in chapter 18 to verse 9. This is what we saw last week. We saw there in the verses that follow that Paul was given a divine promise of protection while he was in Corinth. Remember, he was opposed and reviled in that city. He was about to be apprehended and brought before a tribunal for prosecution. Before that, though, verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city that are my people. So he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A year and six months, that's a long time for Paul. That's his second longest stay. Remember from last week, at the end of verse 17, Galileo, the proconsul, he, he paid no attention to any of this, to what Paul was saying, to what his accusers were saying. He didn't care, and Paul wasn't in trouble there. He was free for a year and a half. And so, as we read this week in verse 18, Paul stayed many days longer, even past a year and a half, before he took leave. And then... Once he took leave of Corinth at Sancria, the next town over to the east toward the coast, that's where he got his hair cut. So I think the vow marks God's promised protection back in verse 10. I think Paul is sort of blending the motivation of thanksgiving for a promise of protection with a petition to the Lord that the Lord keep his promise with also a reminder, a daily reminder as hair grows longer that God has promised his protection and he can go on proclaiming. And so when he leaves, he goes to the next city, finds a barber, gets a haircut because God has fulfilled his promise of protection in Corinth in a unique way. So at first read... What appears to be this odd head-scratcher in the story of a haircut in a vow, what appears to be unnecessary detail at least, or a, a theological dilemma at worst, it actually turns out to be this beautiful, physical, concrete symbol of God fulfilling what he promised. No one will touch you in Corinth I wonder if Paul, when he decided to not cut his hair while he was in Corinth, actually called to mind if he heard it anyway. Luke 21, 18, where Jesus said, Not one hair on your head will perish. It was literally going to be true for Paul for a year and a half. Now, Paul didn't have to make this vow. You're not missing out necessarily if you don't have this kind of vow. Uh, we shouldn't think that long hair is necessarily better or, than short hair or anything like that. But, but however, you want to mark God's faithfulness, mark it, Christian. 
Keep track of it, Christian. Dare I say, hold him to it. Hmm? Don't you dare hold God to something that he hasn't promised. Don't you dare put words in his mouth. But where he has revealed himself truly and perfectly, not least in his word, especially in his word, where we have those kind of promises, then, oh, celebrate his promises. Keep track of those promises and hold him to it. Where he's promised, he will fulfill it. And you can wear that as a garland around your head. Secondly, there's a long journey with little detail. Verses 19 to 23. You see, Paul left Corinth. He has new gospel partners with him, Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife. They came to Ephesus, verse 19, and Paul does his usual gospel work there. And some there ask Paul to stay a little while longer. Usually, Paul would say, you got it. That's what I'm here for. But Mysteriously, now in verse 21, no, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. Where is he going? Well, we're due for a map at this point, once again in our study of the book of Acts. In fact, we've got a little bit of reviewing to do, you could say. Because verse 21 of chapter 18 draws a close or begins to draw a close to what we might call Paul's second missionary journey. But it's the end of it. It's not the, it's not the whole thing. It's been going on for a while. There was the first missionary journey from Antioch, chapters 13 and 14. The second missionary journey after the Jerusalem council. That's into chapters 16, 17, and 18. That stops at verse 22 of chapter 18. Now, at 1823, there's a third missionary journey right on the heels of Paul's return from his second. But take note of this map here in the top right corner of the travel arrows. That's Antioch. That's Paul's home church. That's where he was sent out from in his first journey and his second journey. Remember, In the second journey, he was retracing his steps over churches that had already been planted. And so we saw uh, chapter 13 and 14, I'm sorry, rather, chapter 16 and 17. Paul was in Lystra, in Derbe, in Iconium, and eventually God led him to cross up north to the west. We saw Philippi take place in chapter 16, Berea, chapter 17, Athens, chapter 17, And now we're into Corinth. Last week we saw Paul's ministry in Corinth. He's still there this week. And then he's now, as of just the verse we looked at, he's at Ephesus, but only there for a short time. And now he's heading across the Mediterranean Sea to Caesarea, where then he'll walk up to Jerusalem. I know it looks south on the map, right? But, But notice You see verse 22, when he went to Caesarea, then he went up and greeted the church. That's referring to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was so high up and everything else was down below, you spoke of going up to Jerusalem no matter which direction it was on a compass. And you spoke of going down from Jerusalem no matter where you were headed after you left Jerusalem. So Paul, verse 22 also, he went down to Antioch. He wasn't looking at a map. Uh, They just spoke in those terms. They spoke in elevation, not so much 
in terms of the points on a compass. He goes to these places, Jerusalem and Antioch, because, well, Antioch is ascending church and Jerusalem is sort of ground zero for where all this began. These are sort of the twin headquarters of the mission of the church in the first couple of decades of the church's birth. He goes to these places, I think, at this point, partly, I'm sure, to report what God had been doing out there in the West, in the Roman world. These people had sent him on his way. They had sent him with blessing. No doubt they would want reports. He can't text them back home. you got to get back home to tell them what's happening way out there. And so he's eager to do that. He's eager to tell them. He's eager for them to know that he's okay. He's probably, maybe anyway, in need of some more funds. Yes, he's a tent maker that provides some income, but he's also leaning on other churches, no doubt leaning on his sending church, maybe needing to come back to get a little bit more in the coffer before he begins another journey. And he's also interested in just making another circle. That's what we see in verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is Paul's method. Get believers, plant churches, keep going, but then circle back. Strengthen, check in, build upon, send them letters, move on. Now what a long journey it is. Just verses 21 to 23. The end of Paul's second journey and the beginning of Paul's third journey. That's what's communicated to us with no details whatsoever. The boat ride from Ephesus to Caesarea across the Mediterranean Sea is 650 miles. The walk from Caesarea down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, however you want to look at it, that's 35 miles. The, the hike from Jerusalem to Antioch is another 300 miles by foot. Scholars estimate that Paul's second missionary journey was 3,000 miles traveled by land and sea total. These are, of course, the days before mopeds and motorcycles and cars and things that are electric. It was donkey and foot, and that is it, and sketchy boats. Think of the close calls. Think of the scary moments that we don't know about. Think of the conversations that took place in his visit down in Jerusalem and up in Antioch. Oh, I want to know so much more, don't you? Well, I think here we have a subtle reminder from Luke that most of life happens apart from the headlines. It happens apart from the headlines of our lives. That's what Luke is really giving us is a lot of headlines. But remember, there's a lot in between. Elizabeth Elliot, missionary in Ecuador in the 1900s, she was, she was often asked what, what life is like on the mission field. You know, people wondered, is it just all evangelism and Bible studies and prayer meetings and God's glory and blessing? And, and she said, most of it? is just living. 
It's just getting by. It's just doing what you got to do. It's the mundane. It's clothes and kids and cooking and cleaning. And, and that's it. That's not it, of course. I mean, there was ministry for Elizabeth Elliot, but so much of her mission's life was devoted to the things that you are here, the mundane, the getting groceries, the errands, the, the to-do list. Now, Paul didn't have kids. He probably didn't clean. I can't imagine Paul cleaning, but, but he did make tents. He did get in boats. He did sit in boats for long periods of time. He did load up donkeys and walk them for miles and miles and miles. Now, Luke could have never told us all the details he knew, the ones he's seen himself, the ones he's heard from Paul. But even in the space of a few verses of traveling about, he can remind us of things like Paul's care for churches, plural, not just the next church, but the churches he's been to. He can care and be concerned for the connection of these churches. He, he, he shows us here that the connectedness of other Christians in the mission of the gospel is worth great inconvenience and great expense. Paul didn't own a boat. He rented a boat. It, it cost something for him to make this trip. It cost something to bring missionaries home from North Africa. And it's well worth it. We also see in these few short verses about Paul's travel that, that all of our plans are subject to God's will. Did you, did you catch it? Verse 21, if God wills, Paul will return to Ephesus. We'll find out he does will. But you don't know. This is James 4. A man who says he's going to go into a city and buy and sell and make a profit is presumptuous. He should have said, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such. There's so much here. A long journey with little detail, but many lessons. Now third, there's a powerful preacher with an incomplete message at the end of chapter 18. Keep Paul on hold off to the side in your mind for just a bit. Turn your attention back to Ephesus when Paul was down in Jerusalem or, or Antioch. What's going on in Ephesus? Well, there's a powerful preacher with an incomplete message. His name is Apollos. We're introduced to him for the first time here in the book of Acts. He's described with some detail. Verse 24, he's eloquent. He's competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He's fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately about Jesus. And he spoke boldly, we're told. So here's a, a golden mouth preacher. Here's a guy with eloquence, a voice like James Earl Jones. He's gifted. He's able in the scriptures. He's fervent for the Lord. He's bold and uncompromising. We don't know where he learned about Jesus in the way of the Lord, but we do know here that he, he had some deficiencies in his message. Despite his skill and ability, he's missing something. Verse 25 says he only knew the baptism of John. And then verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila, who stayed behind in Ephesus, they're there, they heard him preach. They need to explain to him the way more accurately. Now details here aren't crystal clear, 
but it seems as though he had the gospel. He, he knew Jesus. He wasn't just speaking in terms of the Christ who is to come, like it's a, a general thing, like any prophet of the Old Testament could have done. No, he's speaking in terms of Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. It seems as though he has the gospel, the way of the Lord, but he probably has not heard what we call Christian baptism. He's known of John's baptism. Maybe he knew of the death and resurrection. Maybe he was in Jerusalem when the crucifixion was happening. He got that news, but he didn't hear the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Maybe he didn't know that there's a baptism that is now pictured in, that pictures rather, Jesus' death and resurrection. John's baptism just, just pictured the need for cleansing and the call for repentance and the notification that Messiah is coming. That's all it did. But now Christian baptism has all new meaning and significance with the death and resurrection of Jesus, which it portrays. How that would affect his message, we don't know. But it's something that's missing, something that needs fixing. He's calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But then once they believe, he's not escorting them to the waters of baptism or Christian baptism. And so, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, need to help the brother out. They take him to tea or something. It's behind the scenes. It's, it's not public. And they, they show him the way. And he receives it. Get that. Husband and wife team, tent makers, they have the gall to address some things that aren't quite right in what they heard. Not doing it publicly, not doing it to shame him. Doing it privately and humbly. And this golden mouth preacher who knows the scriptures and has the voice of James Earl Jones, he, he takes their word. He sees it in the scriptures. He, he hears it and believes and adopts it. So I think one of the reasons why this passage is in our Bibles is for the wonderful examples that we get from Priscilla and Aquila and also from this man, Apollos. We've been impressed with Apollos from even before we saw Aquila and Priscilla step in with some clearer information, some help for his message. He was strong, he was, he was impressive, he was eloquent, he, was, he, he seemed to be godly. And God would use this now with more information, with baptism, now in his necessary tool belt. He, he'll be used of God in glorious and mighty ways. He's almost like a Paul-like figure in the rest of the New Testament. Not that he wrote parts of the Bible, although some people think Hebrews was written by Apollos. But he does pop up at other times. He goes to Corinth after Paul had been there. Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half. Apollos goes there afterwards. And then Paul can write to Corinth later on and say, I planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the increase. Paul can speak of Apollos in lofty terms because God used him in mighty ways. And God used him in mighty ways among the churches because, in part, he was willing to receive a word of correction from this godly husband and wife team. So notice the the example that Priscilla and Aquila are for us. Notice that her name is listed first. That's not the norm in this culture. It's very rare, in fact. It perhaps indicates that she was more prominent, more capable even in the scriptures, maybe, than her husband. But she's with her husband. She's not stepping into a pulpit. She's not preaching to Apollos in a public sort of way. They're a team. But when they hear of some deficiencies in Apollos' teaching, they, again, they invite him over for tea. They talk, and perhaps she talks more. Or perhaps she's just more likable, like my wife is. If anyone was thinking, they would think of Sarah and Ryan, not Ryan and Sarah, right? So she's listed first, but, but not, we shouldn't press that in some way beyond what the Scriptures says. She's not a, a leader in the church Per se, but she is being used and used of the Lord. And Aquila and Priscilla will be used of the Lord far beyond this. They are tent makers who must make a decent amount of money because wherever they go, they have a house in which the church there meets. Perhaps those are small churches. Probably more likely is that they have a big house and they are willing to open it up so Paul can speak of them who have a house church in Ephesus when he writes to the Corinthians. And Paul, when he comes back to Ephesus, he stays with them. They're hospitable left and right. Some five years later, they're living in Rome, and a church there is meeting in their house again. And so when Paul writes to the Romans, he addresses them. Chapter 16, verse 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. Now, we don't even know what that means. We don't know what happened. Somehow they were willing to lay down their lives for Paul, to save him, to rescue him. And Paul is thankful. Not only is he thankful, but all the churches give thanks as well. Greet the church in their house. Isn't it beautiful? What a husband and wife team this is. A husband and wife team that is faithful and flexible and willing to go where there's a need, willing to stay when there's a need, willing to speak up when something's not quite right, willing to help, willing to support, willing to offer their home, willing to put ministry first. And it's a beautiful thing. Lastly, fourth, there are disciples without a baptism. Here in chapter 19 at the beginning we have another story where there's some level of belief or discipleship but then some deficiency as well. And in this case of 12 guys in Ephesus there's actually a greater deficiency than there was with Apollos. There are similarities between these 12 guys and Apollos in that they have some connection to some apprehension of John the Baptist but 
it's dissimilar between Apollos and these 12 because the 12, well, that's all they seem to know is John the Baptist. They're called disciples, verse 1. I think in this case, though, that doesn't mean disciples of Jesus and truly Christians. I don't think they're Christians. Their focus, their message, their belief all resides on John the Baptist. And that's apparent when Jesus addresses them in verse 4 after a a dialogue for Paul to figure out where they are. Look at verse 4. It's telling what they don't know and what the content of their faith had been and where Paul's directing them now. Paul says, in essence, the whole point of John's message and his baptism was that someone else was coming after him. And we know who that is now. It's Jesus. So believe in him. You're baptized in him. And then you get his spirit. I'm sure he explained more than that. But no time for that, for Luke. On to the results. They believed. They were baptized. Verse 6, Paul laid hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Tongues. Just as happened in Acts 2 in Jerusalem. Just as happened among Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. Just as happened with Gentiles in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Now for a fourth and final time in the book of Acts... We have this external sign of the Holy Spirit's presence in a person with tongues. Tongues doesn't happen to everyone or every Christian in the book of Acts. Missionaries like Paul or Peter don't seem to expect it to happen to everyone. They certainly don't teach people how to speak in tongues, like some churches unfortunately do. Those who received it in these four instances, there's no record that they went looking for it. It just happened. Now, whether tongues in 1 Corinthians is a different sort of thing, we'll leave that for a later date. What it is in 1 Corinthians, we'll talk about someday, Lord willing, when we're in 1 Corinthians. But dealing with the data of Acts, it seems simple enough to me that this phenomenon of tongues happened at key times, in key places, with a few different key kinds of people in order to visibly and publicly, objectively and undeniably demonstrate the unity that these Christians share in the experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It had to manifest itself outwardly, not so the person necessarily could experience something different, but so that those around them could know that the invisible indwelling was happening, and it was real, and it was theirs. John Stott nails it when he says the norm of the Christian experience then is a cluster of four things repentance faith in Jesus water baptism and the gift of the spirit though the perceived order may vary a little he's saying in the book of Acts the four belong together in our universal in Christian initiation the laying on of apostolic hands together with tongue speaking, 
These were special to Ephesus as to Samaria in order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that particular groups were incorporated into Christ by the Spirit. So this event in Acts 19 isn't a a second blessing after these 12 men had already been saved. They, They weren't already saved. They were here. They were saved. They were baptized. They received the Holy Spirit. We know Because in this instance, the Holy Spirit manifested his presence powerfully and miraculously. So that Paul would know this is like Pentecost all over again. This is Joel 2 come to fruition. Joel promised a day's coming, the last days, when God's Spirit will be poured out on all humanity. One at a time as they become believers in Christ. Praise God for John the Baptist and his time. Up to that point, he was the most important who'd ever lived, Jesus said. But Jesus also said, he baptized with water and I will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had a unique, unprecedented role before Jesus came. In fact, Acts 1.5 begins, Acts begins essentially in a timeline with John the Baptist. It's a starting point of sorts. It's necessary. It's important. It was really good for God to send a forerunner to prepare the way of the Messiah who would come. But great as John the Baptist was, even he said, oh, that one takes away the sin of the world. That one, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals and he's come these 12 men they hear it they get it they receive it they respond to it they're baptized and they have the holy spirit luke wrote his two volume set of luke and acts so that theophilus and you and me could have greater certainty. So here in these curious scenes of chapter 18 and 19, here in these head scratchers that warrant careful nitpicking investigation, here in these times of transitions, Paul traveling about, Apollos getting enlightened and then having a fresh commission to go, and represent the gospel to churches. And then these, with these 12, they, they went from being followers of John to followers of Jesus. Here in these curious stories, in times of transitions, we can gain certainty about some things. Christian, we can be certain about God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises, even our protection. It may not be for a year and a half in Corinth with an explicit vision preceding it from the Lord. But whatever happens, you can trust him. It's still true. Not one hair will fall to the ground apart from your father's will, right? Even if they kill you. What can they do to you? That's Paul's language in Romans 8. 
We can be certain of that. We see it in our passage. We can be certain of God's unwavering commitment to build his church. Sometimes it's with one and two or 12. Sometimes it's with thousands. But it's in his timing. It's in his way. It's not always the same. In fact, it's helpful to be thinking in terms of the variety of people getting saved in the book of Acts, the variety of circumstances surrounding how they got saved and when they got saved and what it was like. Ponder that. Be certain that Jesus is building his church. Be certain of the message. We're not like these 12 who've heard one-tenth of it, but not enough for it to get us to heaven. Oh, no. Uh, more has happened since John the Baptist. And this morning, you have heard it. This morning, you have heard more than those 12 in Ephesus heard before Paul started asking questions. Be certain of the message. Be certain of the Holy Spirit that he's given to us to empower us, to strengthen us, to give conviction and joy, to communicate God's fatherly presence to our souls. Praise God for the Holy Spirit that unalterably, forever, will dwell within believers of Jesus. And be certain of the mission he's given to us. Be certain the mission that we have that's not done yet. Be certain of what the mission is, by the way. Have you noticed this in the book of Acts? When Paul shows up to town, do you read of him simply caring for the poor? Simply letting his light shine? Simply being a good neighbor? No, I'm sure Paul was all those things. But we don't read about any of that in the book of Acts. There is a gospel-centeredness to every city, every trip, every interaction, every speech. I'm not saying you must get to the gospel every time you have any conversation with anyone anywhere. But I'm simply saying there is a word-centeredness, not a word-and-deed-centeredness. I quoted John Stott earlier. I quoted him approvingly earlier. Let me quote him not so approvingly now. So John Stott used to say, I'm sure it's fixed now, he's in heaven, but he used to say that word, the gospel, is one wing of the plane, and you need deeds, and that's the other wing of the plane. Friend, I would just say that's a really bad illustration. There is a, no one gets saved because of deeds. People get saved because they've trusted in Jesus. There's a word-centeredness to the book of Acts that is absolutely undeniable in the mission is not simply to meet physical needs. Let us meet physical needs that we might have platforms for the gospel, that we might see people be saved, that they might join us in this mission. Let's pray for God's help. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. It is curious. It is spectacular. We thank you. We thank you for the exercise of trying to solve things that are difficult. Even Peter said of Paul that some things he wrote were hard to understand. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised when some things in your word are hard for us to at first understand. So much is so clear. We thank you for that. And you've given us so many clues about what doesn't seem clear at first. Help us to keep growing in our understanding of your word. Help us, Lord, to keep growing in a passion for your your gospel spreading in this world. We thank you for your spirit, for the gift of your presence within us. And we thank you, Lord, for the empowerment that we can't see, but we know is there. Would you, Lord, cause us to not doubt your spirit's presence, your spirit's power, and your goodness to us and your promises to bring your plans to pass. In the meantime, before heaven, before you complete this mission, would you, Lord Jesus, give us yourself, show us yourself, help us, Lord, to behold you in all your glory and proclaim that glory to the world around us. For your namesake we pray.